0: Okay, The Talking Book is a 501c3 nonprofit audio publisher of independent literature. We're in Asheville, North Carolina, and because we're a nonprofit, we depend on donations from our listeners and supporters of independent publishing. So if you want to get involved, go to thetalkingbook.org. That's thetalkingbook.org. You can join our Patreon, uh, or you can come to Asheville and hang out with us, and we can record your book. We record books for authors and publishers. We'll make your audiobook. That's what we do. Hit us up. Uh, anyway, thanks so much for your support. Here's the show. Love you. Welcome back to the Talking Book Podcast. My name is Chris Hartram. I am here in Asheville, North Carolina at the Talking Book, which is an audiobook recording studio and a nonprofit and you can record your book, make an audiobook, Uh, What's new with us? Recently, Danny, my true love, my baby mama, she's been back to work, so that means Daddy is home with the kiddos, Max and Woody, because there are no schools. School is no more, uh, at least for us, for now. So it's been wild and good because I get to hang out with a five-year-old and a two-year-old all day for 10 hours. Uh, and I know some of you are probably thinking, Chris, Chris Hartram, that sounds like it's too much. And sometimes you would be correct. But um, it's also really cool. And I repeat to myself in the mirror, you are lucky to be home with your boys right now. Ya boys. Um, yeah, boys. And as you know, as long as I can find time to work on things and write and, uh, and audio book it, uh for people like you then it's all good i love it i'm uh, very lucky dave burr is here dave burr is also here the audio engineer extraordinaire so you know i'm not alone in this uh, life is good and i hope it's good for you too but uh enough about me today on the show i have a reading from the great sarah gerard uh she is the author of the novel binary star The collection sunshine state and her new novel true love which just came out from harper sarah is a great writer and i appreciate that she wanted to do a reading for the talking book podcast um thank you sarah anyway please enjoy this reading and then go get the novel true love by sarah gerard
1: Hi, this is Sarah Gerard. I'm going to be reading from True Love, beginning at the top of chapter two. I began cutting myself and sneaking pills in middle school, resentful, bored, and unsupervised. I suspected my feelings were more intense than other people's. My parents were preoccupied with their mutual hatred of each other, inspired by the acrimonious divorce and my mother's new residence in a trailer park in Lutz. She has since moved to a nudist colony in Kissimmee to live with her polycule. I moved to New York for college. I stole Adderall from my sweetmate. I fucked her boyfriend on a weekly basis. I fucked people without condoms. I especially liked men who already had girlfriends. The hope was always that they'd leave their girlfriends for me. For them to leave their girlfriends would have been the ultimate victory, proof of my irresistibility, but they never did. I believe it was my sweetmate who called my father upon the advice of other students whose identities remain a mystery to me. I lived for eight weeks in a Tampa facility named after one of the Twelve Steps. My official diagnosis was drug addiction, but I was never picky and any numbing or mood-altering agent would do—weed, wine, sex, starvation. I signed up for trauma counseling because I felt something had happened to me, although I was unable to articulate a single event. Others in the group shared stories of incest, combat, rape, dead children. I became infatuated with a Kevin Spacey look-alike in facility-wide group therapy. He sat across from me and never looked at me, but I felt we had a connection that ran deeper than flirting. We were warned not to start a new relationship until after a year of sobriety. I never said more than two words to him, but I continued masturbating to his memory until he called me one morning a month after I'd left. I'd never given him my number. Hearing his voice, I remembered that he had a family. He had stolen his daughter's Girl Scout money for meth. He'd hired prostitutes on business trips to Thailand. It's swarming season and my building is infested with termites. I awake to their wings beating against my cheekbones. I gather some into a plastic lunch bag to bring to my landlord who has insisted she needs to see a living sample. My duplex neighbor composts in a plastic trash can five feet from my back door. I drag the can in front of their sun porch screen and ride my bicycle to the hypnotist's office. My mother disappeared and my father was always working, I tell her. I've been seeing the hypnotist on a sliding scale for the last month because I have a deep intuition that something is wrong with me, somehow related to my unnameable trauma, and hypnosis seems compatible with my daily wake-and-bake habit. She's white in her late forties, with dreadlocks and carved wooden gauges weighing down her ears. The henna on her hands looks like Spanish moss, and her office is plush with amber lighting, Palo Santo, and embroidered pillows. She told me in our first session that after 10 years of working with children in foster care and five years in disaster relief, this is the field where she feels she can make the most difference. I wish I could offer it for free, she said. I'd have a babysitter three or four nights a week, and it was always some teenager who would invite her boyfriend over, I say. I'd call boys in my class who didn't want to talk to me, who would hear my voice on the phone and hang up. Sometimes there were friends, but everyone eventually leaves me. When I moved back to Florida, none of my college friends even called me. After rehab, I attended N.A. for two weeks, then hooked up with a crust punk I met smoking outside after a meeting one night. The topic had been loneliness. I was gazing at a light fixture where moth after moth incinerated itself. I'm an only child, too, he said to me, bumming a cigarette. Though drawing him closer into my emotional sphere seemed risky at that critical stage in my sobriety, I couldn't bring myself to prefer being alone after that. I couldn't find it in me to reject him when he'd shown me such kindness as to ask me for a lighter. I moved him in with me. He began smoking crack again, but I couldn't kick him out because then he'd be homeless. This went on for weeks until I met Seth riding my bicycle home from the pizza shack. He was two blocks from my apartment unloading bags from the back of the gallery's pickup. I recognized him as a moody artist from my high school. He invited me upstairs to drink tea, and a week later we fucked on his mic-crawling rag rugs. I continued fucking him for another month until I worked up the nerve to dump Mission. Mission skipped town to go train hopping again. Seth has never let me forget this series of events even two years later. Whenever he can, he subtly alludes to the way I live my life. Seth doesn't trust me, I tell the hypnotist. It's his Lutheran upbringing and his parents divorce and then of course his dad died, hit by a Mack truck. I think he blames his mother on some level and by extension all women. I don't know how to leave him, or if I should, or how I even could, or how I can fix things between us. He's moving to New York with me, which seems to suggest he loves me. You love him, she says. Yes, love is a trance. Is that a song? A trance is an inwardly directed, selectively focused attention. It's a story in which you become so absorbed you can't see anything else. She opens a drawer to her left and removes a smudge stick. She lights it and waves it back and forth until the smell of sage fills the room. "'Pretend you're alone,' she says. She's obscured behind a curtain of smoke. "'They're orchids,' Seth told me that first day upstairs. He was reading my mind, brewing tea in a thick jar. He set a timer on the kitchen counter in a beam of late afternoon light. The room was dense, with tendrils of hanging flowers which I'd been admiring. They're not always the most beautiful, but they have bilateral symmetry, so when they bloom, they look like human faces. They watch you.' He kept his eyes downcast, then looked directly into mine. He was taller than me by almost a foot, so I tilted my chin up to him. His cotton shirt was worn through, nearly transparent. "'Do you smoke weed?' he said, inviting me to sit on the rug while he sketched. He passed the joint down to me. Chrysanthemums bloomed in the golden water of my jar. The sound of him enchanted me. His confidence convinced me he was wise. "'What is art, Nina?' he asked me. "'I still am not sure. What facilities does it command? Which aspects of our humanity, of ourselves? It may be easy to talk about, but it's hard to accept. What do I want out of it? Where do I want to go with it? He turned on a lecture by Alan Watts and talked alongside or over it for my benefit, filling in the details for my full understanding. The topic, coincidentally, was how to attract your soulmate. On the deepest level, a person on the whole can get in the way of his own existence, Watts said. I found myself telling Seth about the novel I was writing. I asked him if he would read it and give me feedback. I'd begun drafting it in my notebook when I'd moved back to Florida, disconnected from the internet and unsure of what else to do with my sobriety. The story followed a college student who'd been forced to go to rehab. I brought him a copy the next day in an orange envelope. I'd written the title on the front and signed my name underneath. "'I'd like you to model nude for me sometime,' he said, taking the envelope. He held me with his gaze if you would be comfortable with that. A trance shapes what we see and how we respond, says the hypnotist. She hands me a tiny bottle of water and a tissue. I've drooled on myself. We're highly receptive, much like when we're in love. It's debatable whether we even have full use of our judgment or our faculties. She tells me I need to work on my self-esteem, then she leads me through an intervention that involves tapping various parts of my body, repeating a mantra. I leave with a recording of our session that she's burned onto a CD which I have no way of playing. I notice I've been in her office for two hours. Please don't apologize, she says. I enjoy it as much as you do. On the way home, I bike past Seth's apartment. His window is open. He doesn't answer the door, which doesn't mean he isn't home. He could be in there choosing isolation. I sit and I wait for him. When I returned to model for Seth in the noon, I was surprised to find that our high school art teacher was there in his studio drinking wine. The stone roses were playing in the room's half-darkness. I sat next to Mr. Kruk, a clean, gentle gay man. We were silent, as if bewitched by the presence of Seth, a sort of modern oracle. "'I hear you're a novelist now,' Mr. Cruck whispered. I couldn't tell if he was amused. His eyes were fixed on the development of Seth's abstract masterpiece.' "'That's my book,' I said, gesturing to the orange envelope, unopened, on the floor next to a stack of art for him. "'Extraordinary! Seth, what can you tell me about this future bestseller?' he said. "'Nothing,' said Seth. "'I haven't read it.' "'You'll have to fill him in once you do,' I said. He looked at me and then turned back around and continued painting. "'I'm not sure I can give you a proper critique, Nina,' he said. "'I would like your permission to pass it on to my friend Jared. He's a student of literature.' ''Yes, a wonderful idea,'' said Mr. Cruck. ''You know him?'' I said. ''Oh, yes, he was your classmate.'' Seth washed his paintbrush and laid it on a towel. He selected a pencil from a box of drawing supplies and scribbled on the back of a receipt. ''This will depend on his other commitments,'' he said, ''but here is his number. I'll tell you when to text him if he agrees. He prefers to text.'' When Mr. Cruck left, Seth resumed explicating his work in progress. I feel that negative space and form play an important recent role. I transmute proportions of negative space onto dissimilar, arbitrary portions of canvas, thereby I explore space in painting, in particular the oppositional forces caught in the openness of absence. I lingered. He disappeared into the bathroom adjacent to his bedroom, and I heard him brushing his teeth. He emerged in his boxers, wearing glasses as if ready for bed. "'So, when do you want to start?' I said. He squinted. "'The modeling.' "'Oh. I'm sorry, I don't have time tonight. I see. The demands on my time are immense. The real world steals my sanity. Here I am, constantly surveilled and manipulated by technology, reality, and advertising alike, pissing in my face. You understand. I, too, often felt attacked, put upon, pushed around. I couldn't help but feel as if only I could love Seth enough for him to be fully open, and that only he could lend me the recognition I so needed. Falling in love with Seth was a way of falling in love with myself. I wait for an hour for him to return or emerge, then I leave, wondering if he's watching me through the window. I once waited four hours at a bar where he'd told me to meet him before deciding he'd stood me up. He'd forgotten. Agreements mean nothing to him. If he actually moves to New York with me, I'm convinced it will be an accident. He doesn't answer his phone if he's working. He won't respond to texts. Days will go by and I will hear nothing from him. I'm not married to my call log, he tells me. I feel like an animal, begging. I'm a block from my duplex when a cat darts from beneath a car and runs in front of my tire. I swerve to avoid hitting it and fly over the handlebars landing on my shoulder. I skid several feet on my face and lie on my stomach, scanning for injuries. I watch the cat watching me bleed. A silver dollar-sized abrasion turns red on my elbow. I roll to my side and gather my bike. I limp to the grass. I sit, assessing the damage. The dry grass is like tiny blades cutting into my thighs. The front tire is out of true. I wonder vaguely whether I have a concussion but seem unable to fully form a question. I sit for a long time and consider napping just for a minute. The block is family houses. Someone will see me if I die. The cat approaches and rubs against me. I push it away. It rubs me again and catches my bleeding arm with its tail. The pain starts me awake and I push the cat harder then look at it, suddenly sorry. It's skinny, flea-infested, its paws matted with tar. A creamsicle tabby. It looks like my childhood cat Skittles. Skittles died tragically of renal failure when I was 15. I've always blamed myself for failing to notice sooner that she was sick. I swear under my breath and decide I'm not going to cry. I resent Seth for failing to be here to help me. I peel myself from the ground and lean against the bike. The cat follows me for a block and then walks in front of my foot. I stop to avoid kicking her. I squat and look at her more closely. Her eyes are clear blue. I pick her up and carry her against my chest. CHAPTER THREE Soon after the aborted drawing session, Jared invited me to his home. I arrived in the early evening, chained my bike to his fence on the brick street, and proceeded up the paving stone walkway through a sandy garden of wilting bromeliads. The house was Spanish-style, eggshell-colored, with a screened-in side porch. An old bathtub filled with potting soil housed weeds. Jared answered the door shirtless. He wore a knee-length floral skirt. His hair was pulled into a bun, and a tattoo of Hokusai's Great Wave off Kanagawa covered his left shoulder. "'Welcome, Nina,' he said. "'Come in.' The entrance was partially lit by an antique floor lamp draped in red silk. I eyed the bookshelf and recognized many of the authors I'd read in my undergraduate gender studies and African-American literature seminars. Through an open bedroom door, I could see a man with a jufro sleeping beside a skinny white woman covered in stick-and-poke tattoos. So, you're a writer? I said to Jared. I am an artist. One of my media is text. What are your other mediums? Media. Carpentry? You may have seen some of my work at Black Box. Did you have a show? I made the benches. We proceeded past the open bedroom and onto the porch, where an old corduroy sofa shared space with a particle board coffee table, a grill, a dusty workbench, and several unopened cardboard boxes sagging under stale rainwater. It was carpeted pool table green. Tell me about your writing, Jared said. He opened a cigar box on the coffee table. It held four swisher sweets, a sandwich bag of dry shake, an exacto knife, and a lighter. I sat on the couch. What do you want to know? Whatever you see fit to tell me. Well, the book is loosely based on my life. I had wondered, but I mean, it's fiction. What's true and what's not? None of it is technically true. He rolled the blunt silently as I watched. He licked it, dragged the thumb lengthwise down the paper, spun it, then stuck the whole of it in his mouth and pulled it out again. I look forward to talking with you about your novel, he said. First, I need to pass some items along to a friend who has just arrived. A black beetle pulled into the driveway. A petite Latina climbed out of it. She wore pin-up shoes, black and white polka-dotted shorts, and a lime halter top. She teetered up the walkway and across the yard. "'Hang on, Claudette, let me get them,' said Jared. "'Excuse me for a moment,' he said to me. "'No problem.' The woman opened the screen door and held her hand out for me to shake it. There was something hostile in the gesture. "'How do you know Jared?' she said. "'Seth introduced us. Why?' "'I'm a writer,' I said for the first time. "Jared is reading my novel.' She looked at Jared. He was just returning with a shopping bag of women's lingerie, which he handed to her. "'No, Claudette,' he said to her, reading her face. "'She's sleeping with Seth.' "'We should hang out sometime,' she smiled. She seemed to be saying this for Jared more than me. I listened as she segued into a story about a love triangle at the coffee shop where I gathered she and Jared both worked. The full version involved a lot of characters, some of whom were as yet unidentified. Jared sensed that I was waiting and lit the blunt. He passed it to me on the couch. I passed it back to him. With the blunt, we were passing back and forth the understanding that Claudette was intruding on a conversation that was only just beginning. He took out his phone and nodded to show her that he was listening. He began to move his thumbs across the screen. Claudette continued. She was speculating about the possibility of the coffee shop's management disapproving of staff affairs, whether it was possible the owner would fire someone. She didn't seem to care that Jared was openly talking to someone else while she was talking to him. I took my phone out of my purse and texted Seth a heart emoji. I kept my hand on top of the phone afterward in case he responded. It vibrated. This is Jared, by the way. Nina, your ideas are good but you let them stew too much upstairs without getting out and getting examined. Many of your sentences are long and awkward. Your metaphors are frequently mixed and lose potency as a result. Your voice is good but gets muddled and lost when you reach for big ideas. You rely too much on state literary mechanisms that no longer have currency. You have a tendency to tell instead of showing. Unresolved plot holes and inconsistencies riddle the storyline, though you do some skilled foreshadowing. The story attempts to be at once gritty realism and patent romanticism, but ends up being effectively neither, while its overblown descriptions of good and evil give it a moralizing tone. This story feels raw, like it hasn't gone through a drafting process yet. You seem not to be able to see the forest for the trees, and there are some lovely trees, but they just don't make a forest. You obviously have a good grasp of language, but you need to work on some of the basic nuts and bolts of storytelling before attempting to build anything as grand as you're doing, otherwise its structural integrity cannot hold up even a well-wrought facade. Things you can work on include making your world logically consistent, making sure all things, actions, places, and names have both context and causation, getting rid of unnecessary verbiage, especially words whose duty is being done by other words, working to eliminate clichés and overused literary mechanisms, and using the right word instead of several close approximations all lumped together. I closed my phone and returned it to my purse. I stared at the arm of the sofa while Claudette finished her story. It took her ten or fifteen minutes. I sank into my body. I felt at once far away and painfully present. I considered the attractiveness of vanishing. I would leave Jared's porch, walk to the water, and continue walking until I was submerged. Claudette reminded Jared about dinner at her mother's house tomorrow. I love you, she said. You too, kid, he said. They kissed. Bye, Nina, she said, as if we were friends. He watched her drive away, but remained looking out at the darkening street after her car turned the corner, as if deep in thought. "'Sorry about that,' he said. "'That's okay. "'Did you have any questions for me?' "'Not really,' he seemed offended. "'I read your novel. "'I am the only one who's read it aside from you. "'There's nothing you want to know? "'You've given me a lot to think about.' "'I see.' "'He lit the blunt, which was now a wet roach. "'He burned his fingers and reached inside the wooden box for a clip. "'He held the metal end of it and passed it to me. "'I guess I have one question,' I said. "'What do you write?' "'Everything is writing,' he said. At the moment, I'm working on my Bumble profile.
0: That was a reading from the new novel True Love by Sarah Gerard, out now from Harper. You can get this book anywhere they sell books. Maybe get it from your local bookstore like uh, Malaprops here in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, you can also hear more readings and audiobooks like this at thetalkingbook.org. We record books in a booth in Asheville, NC. Thanks so much to Sarah Gerard for being amazing. Uh, Dave Burr, the audio engineer of My Wildest Dreams. Keegan Grandbois, Holler Boys, and Alex Sturgis for the music, as always. And you know, to Max and Woody, uh, my two boys, who I can hear screaming in the next room. I love you all. Go get true love right now. See you later.
2: Like a bishop who has forsaken sympathy chasing sister squares I was lit before I met like an angel who has forsaken certainty. Sleeping in